This is the Blood Red podcast from the Liverpool Echo, giving you the inside track on all the big talking points from Anfield. David James made 277 appearances for Liverpool during his career, having been signed from Watford in 1992. He also earned 53 caps for England and has played more matches than any other Premier League goalkeeper, with only Frank Lampard, Ryan Giggs and Gareth Barry having made more overall. Now though, he's teamed up with Utilita, the UK's leading pay-as-you-go smart energy supplier to give advice and support to grassroots teams amidst the COVID-19 pandemic. I've picked up the phone to David to speak to him about that. Liverpool, Jurgen Klopp, Alison Becker and more. I also asked him about Arsenal, the team Liverpool faced twice this week, starting tonight in the Premier League, of course, after David predicted them to win the league title this season. I'm Matt Addison, this is the Blood Red Podcast, and here's my chat with former Liverpool shot stopper, David James. The Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. David, thanks for, for joining us. First of all, how are you getting on? How are you? Nice to join you. How am I getting on? I'm getting on very well, thank you very much. Um, yeah. Keep yeah. myself busy using using technology to keep in touch with football across the world. Yeah, of course, it's a, a strange time, isn't it? I mean, we're we're here partly to talk about Liverpool, of course, but also about grassroots football. Something I know that you're very passionate about. You're actually launching launching a, a new national campaign to sort of give grassroots football clubs a, a helping hand. So, do you want to just start with a, a little bit of a, a background on that initiative to begin with? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the um, utility. Uh, asked if I would get involved with Switch the Pitch uh, campaign, you know, in the current climate, um, everybody, let's say, is suffering. So this isn't unique just to football. But when it comes to grassroots football clubs, um, Utilita commissioned a report and I was amazed, first of all, the fact that I'd never seen anything like this done before. Um, and secondly, what the report actually showed with regards to the potential that the you know the COVID-19 pandemic um we could lose one in ten grassroots football clubs across the country and when you think the report was done in September prior to Boris Johnson's announcement uh in the last few days um about the sort of extension and sort of more restrictions on social activities and the, the potential of even a second wave of COVID-19, that one in 10 could actually be a small number, a smaller number. In fact, the the, the outcome could be more devastating for grassroots football clubs. So, you know, for Utilita as an energy company to be looking at uh, energy efficiency from a grassroots club perspective and sort of wider to uh, participants at grassroots level uh, was very rewarding and something that I was um, more than happy to get involved with. Yeah, I mean, as you say, the, the new report revealing that, you know, at least 10% of, of grassroots clubs have that fear that they won't survive the next 12 months. I mean, how much of a concern do you think that should be for, for everyone, whether it's, you know, government level or, or even just individuals? Well, I think, first of all, we have to understand what grassroots football clubs mean. Um, and I extend it, I mean, using uh, Boris Johnson's, uh, I, I quote Boris Johnson by saying that, you know, grassroots clubs are the life and soul of the community. Um, when you think what the, what it actually means to the community in respect of a football club, having a game of football is one thing. And yes, we, we see the physical, uh, the mental, uh, the mental health benefits in being a participant at that level. But when you actually extend that out to what a football club in Wellington city, I have to use as my, uh, my example here, you know, they have a clubhouse, they have a, a small 
3G uh, facility. Uh, they do firework displays. They they impact the community beyond the game of football. And I was there a couple of nights ago for the FA Cup uh, qualifying game to watch a game of football. A uh, couple of hundred, I think maybe 200 people turned up for the game, which was a nice turnout. But when you start having conversations with the, the fans who I know some of them, I don't know them all, but I, I know some of them, um, you get an understanding of how intrinsically entwined they are to the football club. Uh, as I say, on quite often it's not to watch a game of football, it's to go down to the to the social club there, have a drink, watch a game, if it's on the telly, play darts, which is, which one of the guys said to me, you know, we can't play darts anymore in the, in the current climate. Um, or even to use a 3G pitch for uh, for five-side football with a, a group of old men. You know, it's a, it's a valuable part of the community. And uh, without them, then we're all going to suffer, uh, not just the football teams themselves to be able to turn out for a, uh, for a football match. And as I say, the utility report was focused on football, um, but I'm sure without too much thought that every grassroots facility or activity would be having similar, if not worse, problems given um, the restrictions in, uh, in lockdown. And therefore, the government... I think when it comes to the government thing, the, the difficulty is we are dealing with uh, an entity which is being asked upon by everyone everywhere because of the pandemic. Um, and they're asked upon in, in numerous different ways, but more importantly, I think financial support and aid for, and, and rightly so, people who need it. So grassroots are, uh, grassroots clubs, I say, are in a long line of people in need. So how the government help is, of course, yes, if they can give money, that would be the perfect situations to help these clubs survive. But I think um, there is a way, because grassroots clubs looking through that report, you know, they're paying VAT on earnings, they're paying tax on earnings, whether or not the government can manufacture some sort of assistance where the VAT or the tax is, uh, relaxed over a period, be it 12 months, considering that the port was looking at a 12-month time span. So any money that the clubs do manage to uh, to create are actually not being taxed, and that extra bit of money will uh, will help their survival chances. Yeah, I know you were involved with grassroots football growing up in, in Wellwyn Garden City, I believe. I mean, how much of a difference did grassroots football make for you individually growing up? <laughs> Yeah, I, th- I, uh, I mean, the difference is, I, I think, absolute with regards to whether I would have or not played, would would have played or would not have played football. Um, you know, my, my upbringing was courtesy of playing at uh, under-10 level uh, in Welling Garden with my mates. It wasn't uh, a career choice as a, a, a 10-year-old. I didn't know anything about football anyway. It was just my mates played football, so I, I wanted to be with my mates. So... Without that facility at grassroots level, I wouldn't have got on the going to the first step there. I say to to becoming a footballer, um, and I think it's the same. You know, go, as I say, go back to Wellington City match the other night. You know, there's a there's a guy there chatting to who's the coach of the under sevens. Uh, the seven years old, they've got somewhere to go. They've got somewhere to again socialise with people. Um, they've got an opportunity to continue their health and say mental health. Uh, um, benefits and I was just the same 40 years ago sounds like a long time ago but 40 years ago in Wellington City courtesy of Grassroots 
Yeah, I mean, as you say, it's huge, not just for people who are going to, to go on and become professionals like yourself, but it's also, it's that fitness, it's it's social interaction, it's confidence. I mean, I know for, for a mm-hmm. fact, when I was that age, it, it was sort of the highlight of my week. And I suppose if you take that away from people, it, it's a very, almost a, a disastrous situation, isn't it? Yeah, I think... And trying to, it is a very murky world at the moment with understanding about how, you know, what, especially with COVID 19, understanding exactly what this uh, this virus is and what exactly it does. I mean, a lot of things are unclear and sort of the future for most people, again, with the government and Boris Johnson um, talking about more restrictions. There, there is so much murkiness. But when it comes to the report that Utility have done, as I say, it focuses on football. Now, if you extend that logically, the the grassroots infrastructure within uh, all of our communities also offer a lot of these health benefits, mental health, physical health. You know, it's not about being an elite performer. It's not about elitism at all. It's just about having these facilities. And when you take away these facilities, the argument has to be, what do we have to go to? Um, the pandemic has shown one thing, especially with lockdown, that there has been a, a natural navigation towards, for example, online gaming, which in itself isn't a bad thing. In fact, it's probably a positive thing that people can actually recreationally use uh, online gaming or, or uh, games consoles. But when you create these isolated system uh, or situations, you would argue that, that there are a lot of negatives if it becomes oversaturation and the, the sort of the I wouldn't say um, the addictive nature of the games but the compulsion to continue playing things again compounds the isolation issue so without grassroots infrastructure in their communities we are as I say challenged with what the other alternatives are yeah I mean you're giving advice I believe to clubs on how they can sort of save and, and raise money and, and that sort of thing I mean what would you say maybe to our listeners who I'm sure plenty are involved with grassroots football and, and other things like that what is the yeah, advice and, and what can they do well there's multiple things I mean and, and again we, we, we sort of jump from a um, a sort of a pan uh, community to an individual uh, community issue here. And, you know, saving money in the first place in Maslow's hierarchy of needs is probably a, a very simplistic way of, uh, of explaining it. You know, you need to put food on the table. So irrespective, and I say this uh, uh, not against what I'm saying, but logically, you know, put food on the table in the first place and listening or using utilities advice with regards to energy efficiency you know, little little changes, taking plugs out of, uh, especially your, your phone charger or your, your tablet charger, taking the plug out of the wall when you're not using it, uh, switching things off rather than leaving on standby, washing your clothes at uh, a lower temperature, turning the heating down, not that it's necessarily applicable right now, but over the course of the year, you know, turning the heating down a degree or two. The, all these things will save you money long term and it might be 60 pound at the end of the year on an individual basis or a family basis um and once you've provided the food on the table you you have to ask yourself the question you know what am i going to get the best value out of my money for now i'm saying grassroots because of all the facilities that you can find at different grassroots um level sorry different grass grassroots facilities i.e playing the game utilizing the the clubhouse in whichever manner you like going having a kick around with your mates uh buying kit whatever it might be so using the energy saving 
tips will create that opportunity on a house-to-house basis. When it comes to the sort of the actual grassroots clubs themselves, if they have clubhouses, you know, installing, um, for example, the the light switches which switch off when when people aren't in the room, stuff like that. Uh, washing kit. Now, if again, it's sort of volunteer work as well. Um, where if you go down to your local club, and again, a recommendation, you go down to one of your local clubs if you haven't been there before um, and ask if there's anything you can do. Uh, one of the conversations that came up in uh, at Welling Garden the other night was about cutting the grass because the pitch looks absolutely magnificent. I have to say that. And the guy said, no, we, you know, we all jumped on and, and went out there and did something because for one reason or another, they weren't able to do what they were normally doing. So, you know, if there is something a volunteer can do, whether it's fundraising at one extreme or whether it's just helping out um, to, to, again, help the club save some money to keep themselves in existence, then there's that opportunity. I think on a, on a wider scale, and I think everyone has to have ownership here from an individual to, you know, the, the larger picture, either government or the organisational thing, um, it is about whether or not government are going to help alongside everyone else they need to help with the Premier League clubs and, you know, obviously up there in Liverpool, you got to the biggest clubs in Europe. Um, the, whether or not they are in a position to help, understanding also that they are businesses and need to make sure that their business model is working um, for, so they don't end up in financial difficulties as well. Yeah, and a, a final question then on grassroots football. You mentioned Everton and Liverpool there. I mean, do you think Premier League clubs almost have a, an obligation, maybe more of a, a moral one than anything else, to sort of help out with grassroots football? Yeah, I, I, I would be very surprised, um, and I'm not armed with the information. I'd be very surprised if Everton, Liverpool, or any other Premier League club aren't doing their bit at the grassroots level. Um, but as I say, it's, it's more about ownership for every individual as opposed to just the Premier League football clubs bailing everyone out of the situation that, that, that we currently find ourselves in. Of course, it would be nice for them to, to add more uh, if they could, but we also have to understand that the likes of Everton, likes of Liverpool are losing millions of pounds worth of revenue without having fans at the, at the matches. Um, so, and as I say, it is a business at the end of the day and they haven't got all the money in the world to be able to support everybody. And I don't, I think, you know, realistically, we don't want football to be a beggar society at grassroots level where they think that when they're in trouble, someone is always going to bail them out. I mean, as I say, with ownership, there is a value um, and everybody chipping in will add value to that because the benefits of grassroots, as I've said before, uh, go beyond just the game of football. It's about the social, um, the social interaction and the, the betterment of a community. Yeah, it's a difficult balancing act, isn't it? But I'm sure you know both Everton and Liverpool do recognise the, the need for grassroots football. The Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. Let's just quickly move on into a few different other topics as well whilst we've got you on the line. Obviously, I'm going to ask you about Liverpool, one of, of your former clubs. I mean, they obviously won a first league title in 30 years last season. They had their own COVID-19 scare themselves in a sporting sense, of course, when the season got postponed. But they got there in the end and very much deserving winners in that competition. Uh, absolutely. Um yeah, 30 years. <laughs> I'm talking about my career as uh, when I was at Grassroots 40 years ago, thinking that was a long time. And 
when you say it was only 10 years later that Liverpool had won the uh, the title for the last time, it's, it, it, it's astounding, really, um, the success that this club has had. Um, and now, again, I mean, you know, they are Premier League champions, uh, recently European champions, and uh, still current world champions, we have to add. Um, yeah, I, they, they thoroughly deserved it. I mean, the, the season before was extraordinary in its in its own right. Um, and to be able to replicate that the, the last season and, and get the title. I think the, the COVID scare was, in some ways, it, it tarnished what would have been, and there was no reason to think otherwise, would have been um, a record-breaking season in, in so many different ways. You know, that sort of, was it two, three months layoff, in a sense, uh, had taken a lot of the, uh, the, the, dare I say urgency, um, I'm looking for the right word there, but it was almost like the urgency and, and the momentum that people talk about had kind of gone and it was more a case of let's get things restarted just to to accomplish what we're going to do. And they did it and they did it in fine style. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you also played for, for Manchester City as well, the, the closest team to Liverpool last season. But I saw you recently predicted that Arsenal might win the, the Premier League title this season. That was probably a surprise choice. Not many pundits would have gone for them, but what was it that made you say that? Yeah, I have to clarify. I did mention this before Thiago joined Liverpool. Uh, of course, yes. <laughs> that's the trouble with pre-season predictions. You know, a lot of things change very quickly. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I like what uh, Arteta was trying to do, and, and arguably he achieved that right at the end of uh, the season last year. It was the, the fact that he fundamentally changed a group of players. I mean, Jurgen Klopp did this at. at at Liverpool, let's be right. You know, Jurgen, when he signed at Liverpool, took over Liverpool. He didn't bring anyone in in that first transfer window. Um, he got what was much um, uh, a, a squad of players that were getting a lot of stick in a lot of um, judgmental quarters. Dare I say uh, about especially recruitment at Liverpool? If you remember back back then, I'm sure you do. Um, Jurgen Klopp came in and he galvanised a group of players to become a formidable force. Um, Mikel Arteta has done that at Arsenal last season. You know, he changed, fundamentally changed the side into something which looked capable. And I've just figured that, you know, this season there'll be a continuation of that. And this isn't that I, I sort of, I don't think Liverpool are capable of challenging an Arsenal when it heads, you know, sort of hands down. I just felt that all the sides that were going to show more improvement, given the exceptional nature of Liverpool's performances over the last two seasons, um, the improvement Arsenal could be... It's an outside shout, of course, but um, I like what Arteta's doing there. Or And then, as I say, Liverpool signed Thiago, and if you ask me the question now, which I'm sure you're going to do... <laughs> yes, yeah, very much. Yeah. I can't change that prediction from before, but I, I would say given the changes, Liverpool have definitely put themselves uh, back out in front because Thiago is yeah, he's something special. My my friends in India, just to uh, anecdotally tell you something, my friends in India, a lot of them are Liverpool fans. And they were sending me messages to thank Michael Edwards for buying Thiago. So <laughs> but that's how much of an impact he's made joining that club. Yeah, not just Thiago as well, Diogo Jota and, and Costa Simica. Yeah, of course, well, yeah, they, yeah, yeah, exactly. They've only yeah. got better, haven't they, from last season? Yeah, as I say, the the COVID nineteen thing impacted everybody. So Liverpool aren't unique in that situation. But where where there was a side, there, there, there is a caveat to this. 
Um, I, I believe Jurgen Klopp was one of the campaigners for the the winter break. Yes. Um, and if anything, the winter break was the, the the sort of the the catalyst for that sort of change in momentum. Because when they came back from that, I think they suffered their first defeat. Um, and then within a couple of weeks, we had the COVID lockdown. So, uh, as I say, you know. Liverpool are in a position where we looked at Bayern Munich. Um, Bayern Munich are a juggernaut at the moment and you can't see where they're going to be stopped. And Liverpool were essentially that side. Um, yeah. If if buying Thiago and Jota puts them back, if not improving on that, then the, the Arsenal claim will be... Uh, it's not one that I will regret, but I, I made the decision based on what I thought was the right information at the time. But Liverpool will be one hell of a side to stop this season. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Mikel Arteta, I'm sure everyone will agree, has done a fantastic job. But you must have been impressed as well with the job that Jurgen Klopp has done. Obviously, he's been at Liverpool now for the best part of five years. Where does he rank for you among the managers in the Premier League at this moment? Uh, he He's the best. He's the best. I, I, I love the guy. I mean, I, I've been into, uh, into Melwood a few times. Um, I've seen him. I, I've never had a conversation with him. You know, I, I'm in his workspace, so it's not for me to to uh, to initiate a conversation with the guy. But uh, and he always looks focused, so uh, you know you don't want to disturb someone. But um, yeah, he's the best. I mean, he he was a breath of fresh air, not just for Liverpool but for the Premier League when he came in. Uh, the thing that I admire most is that he doesn't avoid the question. Um, you know, he's very articulate in a in his second language, whatever, and. Yeah, the 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 point from a from a managerial um, standpoint was that uh, uh, reiterate he came in to Liverpool, he had a transfer window, and every pundit and his dog seemed to be saying that he needed to spend X amount of million on X number of players to make Liverpool half decent. Um, and it would appear that he went in that change room, if not by words but by actions. He said, "You've got an opportunity to prove yourself." And the side proved themselves, you know. And if if they if they were sold on after his uh, arrival, it was because they didn't prove themselves. But everyone was given a fair opportunity. And as a as a player, the first thing you want from a manager is to be given an opportunity to to prove yourself. And he's done that, and he's continued to do that. Um, and they've just got better and better. Um, you know the the. There were some terrible comments about the recruitment at Liverpool six years ago, um, wasting money, bad bad buys. Those same players that were being criticised were, were part of Liverpool's resurrection. Um, and since then, and it came up in conversation at Welling Garden City, uh, Liverpool haven't bought any bad players. And I, I was trying to think of any players that Liverpool have bought which haven't worked out. So, you know, Jürgen's sort of steering this... Uh, steering the Liverpool ship at the moment. Uh, yes, he's got a great support network, be it above and below, but uh, at the same time, you know, as a manager, he's got to control all this. And uh, as I say, having been in Melwood, it, it's a nice place to be at. Um, and even as an ex-player, you go in there, you, you're welcome. Uh, and everyone just seems very, very happy with what's going on at the moment. In fact, the environment that you're working in, and you couldn't ask for anything better. No, absolutely. I mean, I've got, I've got to ask you as well about Alison Becker, obviously, uh, Liverpool's goalkeeper at the moment. You mentioned you watched Bayern Munich on Thursday night. I saw you tweeting about Manuel Neuer. I mean, 
How do you think Alisson <laughs> sort of matches up to him? Is Alisson now the best in the world or, or is Neuer still up there for you? Yeah, it's a bit, these, these questions, because um, um, hopefully you're not picking me up on this, but the, you know, the, the season before last, uh, when Liverpool had that amazing run-in and, and obviously just finished second by a point, Alisson was the best goalkeeper that I was seeing anywhere. Uh, I have to say Europe... Um, predominantly because to say the best in the world is very difficult because I don't know what's happening in, in all the leagues around the world. Um, so it'd be wrong for me. It, I, I can loosely say the best in the world because it tends to be the best goalkeepers are in Europe. Uh, but Alisson was the best without doubt. Um, last season, obviously there was a lot of injury issues. So uh, it was difficult to, and when he came back, he, he, he changed me. I think um, Adrian had, you can, you can correct me on my quote, uh, my data here, but I think Alice, uh, Adrian might have had a couple of clean sheets in the, his early running. Um, Alisson came back in and all of a sudden there's clean sheet after clean sheet yet again, and he was proving his value. If anything, after COVID-19, he wasn't at his best form for every game. Um, but I said, I think the needs for Liverpool then, they're out of the Champions League. All they needed to do essentially was win the league and they did that. So um, Manuel Neuer, on the other hand, has been... He hasn't been faultless, even in the Champions League. He, he, you know, there was mistakes made in the knockout games right at the end there. But in the end, you know, the Champions League final, there's two saves that he made, which kept a clean sheet. Last night, the save at the end against El Nasri was, in Nasri, sorry, was just top top draw. Um, he's at the moment, currently, as we speak, I, I'd say the top performing goalkeeper in the world at the moment. It's not to say, and I think that Allison is better than Neuer over a longer period of time. And I think this season, once again, you know, penalty save on the weekend, um, he will once again be the best goalkeeper in the world. I, I love everything about him. He's, he, he seems unflappable. And one thing I do like, actually going back to it, was when he first signed for the club, and was it Leicester, where he did the yes. drag back and it resulted in the goal. For weeks, if not months, people were talking about him being a dodgy goalkeeper. And I just thought back to my time at Liverpool, it's like, one incident is is this going to scar him? But he never seemed phased by it. He continued doing what he does very well, which is keep clean sheets, keep a good goal, um, and uh, yeah, I just I just love everything about him. And I, I met him actually. Sorry, I'm going off on anecdotes now. That's I met right. him at Melbourne. Yeah. Um, my coach was introduced me to him, <laughs> and he was born after I made my debut for Liverpool. And wow, I was just yeah. like, wow, yeah. Okay. Well, I, I didn't. He, he's so young, you know. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've we've seen Liverpool sign a lot of young goalkeepers actually over the last few months. Marcelo Pitaluga, the most recent coming in from Brazil, and I mean, I think you were only 22 when you signed for Liverpool, weren't you? So, I mean, was it difficult to come in at, at that stage of your career because goalkeepers don't tend to get to their peak years until a little bit later? Well, funny enough, this is a conversation that's been uh, rattling around with, with me and people quite a lot recently. I mean, the, the idea of peak uh, attributed to age is, I think, a misnomer because, as I'm sure you will know yourself if you've played football, is you could peak at 15 years old. You know, there's no, nothing saying that at 15 you're going to be better when you're 16 or 26. Um it, uh, I think environment has a lot to do with it, but uh, in the end, it's always going to be down to uh, uh, your your biology and whether or not you're capable of actually going further and faster and higher and whatever. Um, but with Alison, you, you're looking at a, a keeper who, as I say, he, he, was he 27 now? 
something like, like that. Yeah, I think 20, so. Yeah, twenty eight. Yeah. Um, he, 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 everything he does is 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 good. So so good um, that his peak might be a bit Ronaldo esque in a sense that he doesn't have to do something exceptional to be still at the highest level. Do you know what I mean? When you look yeah. at the younger younger goalkeepers they bring through, I think, as I say, if you take the, um, the sort of the biology out of it, it's all environmental and it's whether or not they're given the opportunities to actually improve. Um, every club has, and I, I speak to so many goalkeeping coaches, every club has the next best goalie. Um, and then five years later, the guy's not even playing football anymore. So, as I say, vi- environment's one thing. Opportunity, of course, is another one. I was fortunate in my career that when I got my my chances, um, I was able to take them. Um, you just wonder whether with the the setup, especially at the top uh, top professional clubs, whether they actually get the opportunities because there are a lot of people involved in that system. Do you know what I mean? So every club's got six, seven goalkeepers. When I was um, 19, 20 years old, there was three goalkeepers at what football club. So, you know, I always had arguably a chance to get through. Yeah, of course. Yeah. I mean, obviously, Loris Carrius is still at Liverpool as well, still a pretty young goalkeeper himself, but mm-hmm. he's now obviously third choice. And we all know what has gone, gone on for him in, in big matches in the past. What would your advice be to him, given the fact that it seems obviously Alisson, but also Adriana are both ahead of him in the pecking order? Yeah, as I say, I mean, I'll just go back to what I said previously. The the difficulty in the in the current game is that there are lots of goalkeepers about. Um, you know, the, even the idea of putting people on loan. Well, every Premier League club with six goalkeepers wants to put their goalies out on loan. So, you know, very quickly, all the all the positions, available positions, are are taken up. Um, I think age wise, I mean, he was a big success last season. Yeah. Uh, the the idea of being able to excuse me um, the opportunity to be able to get some gameplay doesn't have to be in England, uh, but you I th- I'd argue you have to be playing. He's young enough to to be able to get himself back. You know, you mentioned there that I signed at Liverpool at 22, um, started that Premier League campaign, was bombed out for a period of time, got back in again. You know, a sending off, which didn't help me at the end of the season against Norwich, meant I missed the beginning of the following season. I think it was what four, five, six months before I even got another another sniff at it. So, you know, the dead time, i.e., not playing, is not good. Um, but age-wise, there's plenty of time for him to resurrect himself. And when Liverpool signed him, Carius is one I liked. So I thought he was going to be a very good goalkeeper. Um, there's no reason why he can't still attain that level. Of performance, whether it's for Liverpool with um, Alison Becker in front of you, is uh, well very questionable. You know, Alison keeps himself fit, then he's number one, and uh, there's not many people in the world of football who can argue that he shouldn't be or even challenge him for that position. So, as long as Liverpool keep Alison, um, if I was be behind him, I'd be looking. <laughs> I'd be looking to play somewhere else. Yeah, I think so. Then, <laughs> just be, just before we uh, we finish, we did mention briefly some predictions for for Liverpool this season. But I'll just get you to sort of reiterate that. Where do you think, firstly, they'll finish in the Premier League, and and secondly, in terms of the trophies, how much silverware do you think they can win this season? Well, as I say, I mean, not that I'm going back on my words because of uh, I'm having a conversation with a Liverpool man, but the, the signing of Thiago. Is is a major shift in my opinion with regards to Liverpool. You know, the Arsenal would have would have just won it in my in my idea. I think Liverpool with Thiago with Jota, and and the staff that they've already got, um, they proved it last year. 
you know, they're, they're capable of going on massive unbeaten runs, which are enough to win leagues. So there's nothing to say that they can't improve on that now they've got the new signings. Uh, so the Premier League can be, or should be, without putting any pressure on them, not they, they need it. Um, Liverpool should be champions. You know, Thiago is and Jota are, are two key, key signings. So Liverpool should win the league now. Um, with regards to silverware, and again, going back to Jurgen Klopp and his his, men, his sort of mentality, interesting, I'm, again, because I've not spoken to him, but when you think about the Super Cup or the, the League yeah. Cup, well, sorry, it was the League Cup or the FA Cup last year, um, the decision was made that Liverpool were going to win the Super Cup. Sorry, the Super Cup, the, uh, the World the, Cup. Champions. Yeah. 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 And it was, in my eyes, the right decision. You know, the, the holy grail for Liverpool was always going to be the Premier League in a sense. Um, but to be world champions, I mean, what do you need to do to be world champions? You literally need to be everyone, continental and then and the world. So that decision was right. Um, they're not involved in that this year. So you look at all the cup competitions, why wouldn't Jurgen Klopp want to win everything? Yeah, exactly. And with, with, yeah, with the Liverpool squad, why can't they win everything? <laughs> I'd like to be at Melwood right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very much so. It'd be, a, it'd be very interesting, I think, to be a, a fly on the wall just for a few months. It'd be interesting, actually, if there was a, a documentary, a bit like the, the Tottenham one. I don't know if you've seen that, but I don't think there's... Uh... I, I think, I just, well, I put it this way, I think Liverpool have already done that. Yes, and it, of course. It, it didn't, uh, I mean, I'm not saying the documentary affected performance, um, but the question has to be, Liverpool didn't do particularly well having a documentary team around them uh tottenham didn't do particularly well having a documentary side around them so uh the fly on the wall i think is best left to the imagination and uh let them do what they do best which is win games of football yeah i think certainly jürgen klopp would agree with that but yeah very very interesting stuff david thank you very much for joining us my pleasure all right take care enjoy the season you've been listening to the blood red podcast from the liverpool echo